Thanks for tuning back into the Catch My Drift podcast. This is your host, Matt Kelmis. And today, joining me on the phone, I got Riverstone Kennels, Josh and Whitney Miller. Josh and Whitney are British lab breeders and trainers, and they're hardcore waterfowl hunters and upland game bird hunters as well. Well, Josh and Whitney, how are you guys today? Hello, we are doing really well. How are you? Doing good, thanks. How have things been going lately at Riverstone Kennels? <laughs> busy. <laughs> busy, it seems. It's busy. We're doing well. We're gearing up for our busy training season and puppy season coming up. So we're excited. We have a lot of fun things coming up. Yeah, I I follow along on your social media um pages and it sounds like uh you guys have got a busy next 60 days <laughs> yes yeah. yes we do with, with me more than i do <laughs> you know we're still in kind of the uh the, the train season lull if you will as we kind of head towards spring you know there's just up here in wisconsin there's just not a ton that we can do from a gun dog standpoint so out of respect for our clients we don't take you know, intermediate or advanced gun dogs in over the winter because there's, you know, we can't do any water work, of course, we're fighting snow or fighting weather. You're just not going to be as productive as you are in the spring and summer months. Um, so Whitney is going coming into, mm-hmm. you know, sleep deprivation season as she has uh, a bunch of litters coming up. And it's, it's funny, once in a while, you know, people ask, you know, in a situation like this, because how many litters do you have coming in the next? Season? I have um, eight litters wow. coming and, in the next two months (laughs) a lot of people are like oh my gosh you know like why do you staff them up so much like that and honestly you really don't have a lot of control over it it's all run basically by mother nature the females only come into heat twice a year and you know a lot of people don't want their dog gone or pregnant during the hunting season which makes us have usually a very busy spring and summer season so um, they're all staffed together. It's going to be a, a lot of work, but it's also a lot of fun and extremely rewarding. Yeah, this seems like a pretty good time to have a puppy kind of right in the right in the start of spring, you know, their first few days mm-hmm. of their life. It might be a little bit cold, but as we get into the spring and into the summer, they're getting a little more adventurous. You can start probably training those little pups to a little few basic commands outside. And yeah, it seems like a perfect time. Yep. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, a lot of people like to do the whole um, potty training when it's not negative 20 degrees out. So a lot (laughs) of people like to get puppies in the spring and summer when it is nice out. Perfect. So how do I, I know you guys, Josh, um, you just got done uh, finishing out your hunting season down in Arkansas. And Whitney, you, I know you're a, you're a pretty avid, um, avid upland game hunter too. How did your 2021 season go? You know, our season from a waterfowl standpoint was much better than it was last season. Uh, last season was really tough all the way around. You know, weather just didn't seem to cooperate and didn't, you know, didn't push birds down, which meant, you know, meant birds got stale wherever they got hung up, which, you know, stale birds are just difficult to get to hunt, especially late season when, um, you know, I really try to concentrate my efforts down in Arkansas in that, like, you know, January time frame. And one of the biggest reasons that I hunt a lot in Arkansas is because uh, of the late season. You know, like I said, you know, training season kind of winds down here over the winter because of, you know, the, the hurdles Mother Nature presents. And so it gives me an opportunity, you know, to finish out my training season up here, you know, in that September, October, November time frame. But if I just tried to hunt around here in the Midwest, you know, my waterfall season would be over. And so, you know, being able to travel, um, you know, just really expands my season. But uh, you know, a place like Arkansas, you know, everybody kind of, I think, nationally glorifies Arkansas a little bit because of uh, the prestige and you know the, the you know the stories and the videos mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And um, and and there is nothing, absolutely nothing, like hunting ducks in the woods. I mean, there's there's just not. I I, I always say that of a thing that you can do in waterfalling, maybe even in the outdoors, just because you get so close to these birds and you see these birds do things that, that you wouldn't normally see. And it's, um, it's, it's just a very special experience. 
But the problem with scale birds is that Arkansas is also a big money area, and there's so much that is, you know, leased. There's so much that is bought up, and it's not like, you know, when we're in North Dakota, you know, we can travel, we can scout, we can knock on farmers' doors, get new permission, and we're always trying to chase the axe, right? We're always trying to get where those birds are. It's not that way, you know, out uh, down in Arkansas. So it presents difficult problems where, you know, this year, weather was much more favorable. I mean, shoot, I broke ice in Arkansas for almost the last two weeks uh, just to keep holes open and keep uh, water uh, available for these birds. And, uh, you know, it just kept new birds, you know, filtering in all the time. And so uh, it was a much better season. Um, I would actually say our, our worst state that we had this year, which is super abnormal, is Montana. You know, we just didn't have uh, great hunting in Montana this year. We hit the weather really, really uh, in a tough spot. But, um, you know, that's one of always one of our favorite trips of the year for Whitney and I go out there and so it was great you know north dakota i thought was very good um across the board to say you know missouri was was pretty good um you know uh, it was a good travel season overall great waterfall season overall sweet did you guys uh you said you hit it pretty late was it pretty iced up in montana then when you went there or well so we try to go late where things you know freeze up and then we really concentrate on you know the warm water creeks you know to you know to really um magnifies you know where these birds sit you know from a not only a feeding standpoint um you know we really don't shoot you know um roost you know we're not shooting yeah. roost but uh a lot of these you know these warm water sloughs they stay open and there's you know feeding opportunities you know those uh those creeks and so that's kind of where we we try to centralize there and it, it really makes it to where um the challenge the big challenge is um if it gets too cold, which is what we, we ran into this year. You know, we, you know, you know, trying to, we, we have to at least date plan a little bit. You know, with you know puppies and our schedule at the kennel, um, and so the temps for the days that we were there were was negative twenty. Yeah, so, and that was real <laughs> negative twenty. Um, <laughs> which it just, you know, it, it's, it's no different than you know than deer hunting or anything else, right? Like, you know, cold helps you. But at some point, it's, just, it's too cold, and everything right. just kind of shuts down. <laughs> kind of what happened? Yeah, you know, um, birds sat and they just they didn't move. So, yeah. um, but you know we uh, but we love that trip. We have uh, you know great relationship with Sitka, and so we go out there and we hunt with our, our buddies that uh, that are with Sitka every year out. Uh, so we kind of you know spend some time in Bozeman. We love Bozeman. Uh, we've been going out there for years. Actually, we started going out there fly fishing even before we started hunting. Um, you know, Whitney and I, and I both enjoy that and. Uh, try to travel for that as well uh, as much you know, as much as we can anyway, and uh, yeah, it just you know it just it, it's fun traveling to hunt because every place you know offers different hurdles, um, different challenges. You know, like when up here in the Midwest, when when I always thought of a ducky day, you know, I heard of my dad talk about it, my grandpa talk about it, and else you think of you know the dark. You know, day nasty, windy. You know that kind of you know, sleep mixed day, in there right? too. Yeah, right. Where in Arkansas, a lot of guys won't even go out if it's not a bluebird sunny day, and and it, there's a there's a big difference there. You know, birds just finish better down there when it's sunny. Now, I would I would argue that they finish better when it's sunny here too. Yeah. Um, but you know, the big thing is they're not wearing sunglasses. You know. They're, they're blinded to, you know, you can get away with maybe a little lesser of a high. You can get away with, you know, some things you couldn't get away with on a dark day when birds are educated, especially, you know, that's something that a lot of times we don't see here as birds push through, you know, we hunt these birds a certain way. Well, the saying down in Arkansas is that by the time they get there, you know, these birds have PhDs, you know, because they've been educated the whole way down there. And so you just have to get more creative on how to finish these birds. And so um, I just really love the different challenges that each, you know, each area um, and each new stake uh, presents itself. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's talking about the weather a little bit. You you definitely need a, one extreme or the other, you know, sun and wind or driving snow or wind. I mean, Definitely, definitely one of the extreme. And when you meet that middle point, it's uh, can definitely be tough. And overcast with no wind day is it can be pretty tough if you if you got some stale birds around. That's for sure. And right. Whitney, mm-hmm. Whitney, how about your uh, your upland season? I know you get get after it pretty good in the in the grass. How'd that go? 
Yeah, my upland season, I had a blast this year. I had Purdy and Bracken both with me. We were able to make it out um, to South Dakota for a couple days, which was great. It was um, it was really fun to watch both of them and how they work differently in the field. You know, and they both had um, a little bit different backgrounds, and so it was fun for the three of us to kind of, kind of come together and join up as a team. You know, Josh had usually had Bracken with him all waterfall season the last couple of years and he was gracious enough to let me take Bracken um, upland hunting this year as my guy and then I had Purdy with me and Purdy was actually also halfway through one of her pregnancies you know Bracken just being a waterfall hunter he is used to just being close to Josh and just being very patient and um, it was fun to watch him understand that he could venture out those 10, 15 yards in front of me and learn how to quarter, work the field with me and understand the upland side of things. And then Purdy, um, she is so laid back, so sweet in the house. And then she gets out into the field and she is a little pistol under control, but it was so fun to watch her excitement out in the field and see how much she loved being out there. Um, chasing those pheasants. So that was really cool. And um, a little background on Purdy. Her very first hunt with Josh and I was actually in Kansas this year on a dove hunt, which obviously is a very controlled hunt. Yeah. So, um, so her and I got to go through both of those different types of hunts together. And then just with the breeding side of things and having two young kids, I did a lot of um, public land hunting around home as well in the afternoons when we could get out. So, um, you know, we're each year we're able to get out a little bit more and a little bit more. And I'm hoping that this coming year, um, this coming hunting season, I'm able to take a couple bit more trips um, out to South Dakota and maybe some other states to do a little bit more upland hunting as well. Fun. That's yeah, a blast. We, we went out to South Dakota and uh, this past year, I actually tagged out on, on my buck pretty early, so we were able to get out. Um, pretty good time. We man, we saw a lot of birds, and we were able to get on some private land and just knock, like you said, knocking on doors. And it was a great time. There were three of us, and we brought four dogs with us, and it's great, man. It's just a fun having time. You know, fun time watching the dogs work and having dinner with your buddies afterwards, and you know, reminiscing the hunts. And yeah, it's just a great time out there. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's just a blast. Well, like you said, watching the dog, I don't think I would go out hunting if it wasn't for the dogs. You know, you don't even have to pull the trigger. It's just so fun to watch the dogs work and really see how much they enjoy being out there. Absolutely. So was that kind of how you guys got into breeding dogs and training dogs just from, from hunting with them and then kind of took that, that passion into a business or how did you, how did, how did that work? That's a great question. I'm going to let Josh take this one. <laughs> He has a good story. Well, I would say so. I mean, I uh, I would like to kind of say that I was uh, I was somewhat of the black sheep of my family growing up. Uh, so my grandfather had a cabin and some property up in northern Wisconsin, and that's what we would do on the weekends. See, in the fall, is we'd go up there. But you know, my family was always big deer hunters, and so they always wanted to you know, go deer hunting for whatever reason. Uh, I just love ducks. I mean, there was something about, you know, the ducks that just kind of, you know, made me gravitate towards, you know, wanting to be on the water. And so uh, my grandfather's cabin was on a lake. And so he had, you know, his 80 acres across the road and it was on the lake that we could actually hunt. And um, so my family would get up and they'd go across the road to deer hunt in the morning. And I'd take my little skiff out and I would, you know, go try to uh, attempt to shoot a duck because I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, that turned into that I wanted, uh, I wanted someone to do it with. And that's where, you know, my first dog came into play. And, you know, we, we had dogs growing up, but they weren't gun dogs. And we had labs. Um, but, you know, they weren't, they just weren't, you know, they, they just weren't the right dog. You know, we see it a lot, you know, now, you know, with training is that, you know, breeding is so crucially important. And, you know, these dogs didn't really have the desire, but they also didn't have the training. You know, we, you know, there wasn't something my dad was ever interested in, you know, training the dogs. And, um, you know, of course with, with my dad, not interested in it. I wasn't, but then, yeah, when I got my first dog, I think I was, um, I was 16. I just got my driver's license and it really turned into that, you know, training the dog was my free time. And so I was, uh, I was a three sport athlete in college or I'm, I'm in high school, which meant that, my my time was school and sports 
And so to have the dog of something to look forward to do outside of that, I think just kind of gave me an energy and I really enjoyed it. So I got to you know, read all these books and watch all these DVDs and, and didn't understand how truly special of a dog I had. His name was Easton. Um, and, uh, you know, he made me enjoy it just because, you know, he was so naturally gifted. And so, um, you know, as I fell in love with him more and more, you know, I, I just, you know, I met a guy actually in, in an aisle of uh, Sportsman's Warehouse, which was, you know, a sporting goods store that used to be around here. And I just met a guy in the dog aisle as I'm looking at stuff, and he ended up being the secretary of the local uh, hunt club or the, the local um, yeah, HRC club. And he's like, hey, like, you should really come down and, and just see what it's like. And I was like, okay. So I remember going over there completely nervous because I had no idea what to, what to expect. And I had no idea the level that I had Easton trained to. I mean, he was he was running with all their top dogs and he was excelling. And so they're like, you you have to campaign and you have to you do this. And so I, I remember they, um, not that in particular club, but they knew another club that was putting on what they called a fun run. It was just a, a basically a, a it was a field trial that they put on for trying to get new people involved. And so I was probably one of probably twenty some you know dogs that ran that day. And, uh, you know, Easton won it. And that little blue ribbon was the most expensive thing I've ever gotten in my <laughs> life because that, that led to so much more with, uh, I mean, it really led me down the path of, of you know, tr- where I am today. You know, I, it, it's incredible to me that that dog had such an impact on my life. You know, if, uh, if it wasn't for that dog, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the property I have today. I wouldn't have the business I have today. I wouldn't have the friends I have today. Um, and it was all because of that dog. And it's just, it's absolutely incredible looking back and reflecting on that. And so that, that's what, that's what really led us down the path and, and brought us to where we are here. And of course there's a lot of evolution to that. Uh, we, we were trained first. And so, uh, I went and I mentored under, Oh, actually seven different guys is who I really identify with of like, I actually went and mentored under them, but I learned from a lot more people from that. I feel like that that's the biggest thing that is a frustration of mine in my business as far as the training goes, is that especially now with social media the way it is, it's like we're seeing new dog trainers pop up overnight all the time. Yep. And it's like, you know, there, there's no real, you know, background as far as like, okay, show me what your credentials are, show me who you learn from, or show me how, well, I, I have a dog and I like doing this, so I'm going to do this professionally. Well, you know, for me, it's like, you know, we, we see – the reason I take it you know, personally is we see so many nightmare situations every year come from somebody who spent their hard earned money, giving it to a quote unquote professional to train their dog and had a nightmarish experience and then have to come to us begging saying, can you please help fix this? And, uh, it's really frustrating. Those are, those are some of my most, um, proud projects, you know, because once you get them over it, you realize how impactful you've been on, on this person, their life, their, their, you know, relationship with their dog. Um, but you know, for me, you know, learning from, from those guys, like it was, it was really the launching pad that I needed to then fast forward and start my own business because it, it showed me so much of what to do. It showed me so much of what not to do. And what I've really learned is that dog training, it, it really comes down to how much knowledge you have because if you're, if you're training one dog, you can kind of learn that one dog. You can kind of cater your approach and your style and your delivery to how that one dog communicates, right? When you're trying to do that with 30 dogs that are always rotating through, that's where you really start to see, okay, so how many, how many weapons do you have in your arsenal, right? So like when your dog, you know, when this in particular dog throws you a fastball and the next dog throws you a curveball and the next dog throws you a slider, can you hit all three of those? Right. Um, and so it's, it's one of those things that, uh, that I think it's really been a, a huge part you know, of the, the, the process of, of the growth of our business. Um, and then kind of fast forward again. So once the training business was up and established, um, I really started to follow up with these British labs. And that's what really led us to, you know, me going overseas and starting to bring, you know, these dogs in that I felt like were the dogs that I was looking for, that I wanted, and then, you know, growing our, our breeding business from there, which I think um, has been a huge deal. And, and Whitney is the one that runs the breeding business from top to bottom. I'll never take any credit for that um, because, you know, she's the, she's the puppy queen. And, um, and you know, so it's, uh, it's, it's been awesome for 
Whitney and I to have the relationship that we have that, you know, I, I can kind of, you know, spearhead the training side of it. You know, she has the breeding side of it. So we work together, but we work separately. And so it's, uh, it's, it's just a great combination, you know, between the two of us. Sure. Sounds like it. You mentioned uh, just a little bit ago about British labs. What's the big, what are some differences, I guess, or what maybe what are the biggest differences between a British lab and an American lab? Mm-hmm, for sure. Well, so um, I'll tell you a quick little story of why we got into British lab because I'm very open about this. When I, when I was training initially, um, I hated British labs. <laughs> I, I really did. I mean, I, I, Oh my gosh, here we go. Because what was happening is that from a trainer, from a trainer standpoint, the, the British labs that I was seeing, I would get in and they'd be, for lack of a better term, they'd be slugs. You know, they, they had no desire to go, no real strong retrieve desire. They were super soft. And if you looked at them cross-eyed, they, you know, they'd roll over, you know, like, <laughs> the train, like, how do you work with that? Right. And, and, but my job is still to get the most out of this dog. And so it was very, very difficult. Well, then I saw my first one that I really liked. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, this is different, right? A couple weeks later, see another dog, British Lab, that I really like. Ironically enough, from the same breeder. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know? So I, uh, you know, get with the breeder, um, talk over what is it that they're doing right you know this is what i'm more looking for um kind of go over all that stuff well that led to me uh booking a flight going overseas and seeing it firsthand and what really was um eye-popping to me was uh, i attended my first field trial overseas and the first thing i loved about what they were doing overseas is their trials are on live hunt cool not cold that game like we do here, right? And, and I'm not bad about it because I compete you know, here myself, but it's very different, right? Because on a live hunt, no two retrieves are going to be the same, and you're going to have the natural um, challenge that you would in any type of a real hunt, right? So, like, you wing a bird and it's a cripple that's running. Like, your dog still has to go successfully pick that bird up, yeah. right? Um, really interesting. So, I really like that. I loved how, uh, how strict they were with certain things, you know, so one, one thing in particular was the noise. So being a waterfowler, I cannot stand noisy dogs, dogs that whine, dogs that are vocal in the blind at all, because I don't want to listen to that for four minutes, let alone four hours. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so one thing that I thought was really neat was, um, there was a dog and I vividly remember this, I was standing right there when it happened. Um, the dog competing yawned and at the end of the yawn went, at the end of the yawn, like a lot of dogs yep, do, right? Yep, heard it a hundred times. <laughs> right, and the dog, the judge looked at the dog and said, "He's out." Well, like that little bit, that's unacceptable. You're you're disqualified. You just you just got kicked out of the trial. Where here, you know, we have you know because you know through specifically our hunt test, you know, we have to you know, honor while other dogs work or other dogs honor us while we work as part of you know part of um, what we have to pass. And we have had dogs like barking and scream whining at the line but they go do the work so they get you know the pass they get the title they get yeah everything's on paper you know you can't see that the dog was being vocal right but over there you never get the chance to ever get any kind of a title if you're at all vocal right so i loved that because i'm a big believer that noise is genetics now i I think you can make a naturally quiet dog noisy by handling them improperly but to make a naturally noisy dog quiet is almost impossible everything is genetics and so you genetically, you're taking away the dogs that are being vocal, right? You're not giving them the opportunity to, to have those accolades behind their name. Um, so I really, really like that. The other thing I loved was, um, was the mouth side of it. So because they're on live hunts, these field trials overseas again, that the, how the estate that puts on the trial, how it helps pay for the cost of the trial is it will take the game that is killed on that, that uh, event and they will sell those birds at market, and that's how it helps pay for everything. Well, if there is one little thing that is done to that bird by the dog, damaged in any way, that, that bird is no longer uh, acceptable to go to market, so the dog is disqualified. This could be, I mean, these judges, when they get these birds back, they go over them almost with a fine-tooth comb to look at everything. If there is one rib that is broken, if there is one puncture mark at all, the dog is disqualified. Wow. And so, again, the natural mouth, right? 
natural malt and natural retrieve should be something that we as, as you know, retriever owners want, right? But it's amazing how, um, how oftentimes it's, it's an overlooked thing. I know that sounds silly to say, but it's true. So there, you know, when I really started looking at all the things they were doing, that's what I was looking for. And these dogs were incredible. They're big motors, big drive, you know, big, I mean, these dogs were, you know, jumping fences and like doing these crazy things. So I loved all of it. What was the complete nail in the coffin for me as far as like, this is, I'm, I'm all in. Was after that day at that trial, we were in the very north end of Scotland, in the middle of nowhere. So all of the people that were competing or, or attending the trial, we all stayed at the same little hotel that had this little pub attached to it. And so uh, I went up to my room to shower before dinner, kind of thinking about everything I saw, you know, over the course of the day. And I went downstairs for dinner, walked in the pub, and the part the the pub was kind of like the bar was in a big L shape. And so as I walked in, I could see all the the handlers that had competed because like, I'd watched them all day sitting at, at the bar. And so as I come around the bar corner, the, um, I come around the corner and all the dogs had just watched compete are laying at the bar stool. And they're calm and they're quiet and they're not disturbing every, everything. They just hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, I don't know anyone back at home in the state that, that when they're really honest with themselves that this is, this is what they want. They want a dog that is very impressive in the field. They want a dog with a big motor at big athleticism natural mouth, they want to be quiet. And at the end of the day, this is what they want, right? They don't want the dog that's pacing, that is anxious, that is whiny, that is, they want the dog to go be a part of the family. They want yep. the dog to be respectful, quiet. And, and, you know, it's just, it's, it's, that, that was it for me. And so I was like, okay, I'm all in on this. And, uh, and really went from there. And so from there was a lot of, um, spending a lot of time with me, uh, building relationships. Uh, I've had, I mean, I have a number of friends now that, you know, I've stayed at their house. They've stayed at our house. We bring them over here to show them what we have going on over here. Um, it's it's not, to do it right, it's not an easy thing, but it's something that we poured a lot of time and uh, an investment into. And I just think, uh, well, I hope anyways, that uh, kind of the proof's in the pudding as far as the quality of dogs that, uh, that we're able to produce. It definitely sounds like it. I mean, it, just hearing you explain that and, you know, just the passion you can hear it, uh, definitely sounds evident and i mean that that that's pretty cool what uh, what kind of traits would you look for in selecting a puppy obviously you you know you talked a little bit about you know that soft mouth uh quiet you know um when it's sitting in the blind you know being quiet but that's an adult what else would you look for when just selecting a puppy or or how do you i guess um i've heard you talk a little bit about pairing the pairing the pa- parents or the owners with a puppy to the individual how does that work yeah, well, you know, that the nice thing about us having the training facility as well as the breeding is that we're trainer, I specifically am training the puppies that we're producing. And so I'm really able to see and I'm very critical uh, on our puppies um, because I'm, I, you know, the only way that we can get better is if we are critical, right? If we mm-hmm. look at things through rose-colored glasses, you know, it's easy to, to accept faults. All these dogs are going to have faults. It's just a matter of what are they. And if we start to see trends, then we have to make you know, different changes. And so, you know, for us, seeing these puppies go through the training is so important because we can watch and say, okay, we thought that these dogs were going to be very driven, but very composed, naturally retrieved. And, and yes, we are seeing that. Or are we seeing a trend of like, hey, I wish that they had, you know, a little, you know, a little more pop. I wish they had a little more, you know, and again, we're, we're, most of the time we're being critical because, you know, you talk to the owners and they're like, this is my double lifetime. You know, why are you being critical on them? Um, you know, but for us, again, we're just always trying to get better and always trying to improve. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing to me, we talk about genetics, right? We talk about why genetics are so important. We, we talk about genetics and, and the importance of that in so many things, right? Like you could talk about it in racehorses or in cattle or yeah. in all these things. But yet, when it comes to dogs, because we humanize things, we, we, we can overlook it, right? Of like, you know, some people will, will try to disagree with me on the, the vocal side of things, that noisy dogs won't produce noisy puppies. Well, genetics say otherwise, right? I mean, like, when, when you have traits that your parents are displaying, that will be, you know, likely passed on. And so that's something that we're very, very particular about. But that also doesn't mean that great dogs automatically produce great puppies. And we have had dogs that we have been absolutely in love with. 
but they just didn't produce the puppies we were we were looking for, and so we had to you know rehome them to a forever home. That they end up being dogs of a lifetime for these other people. They live fantastic lives. It's great, but it breaks our heart because these these dogs are part of our family, you know. And from a business standpoint, we can't keep everybody because we would own forty <laughs> dogs. And, you know, we just it's chaotic enough around here, you know, without it. And so um, that those are. Those are kind of the hard things that you don't see from, you know, from, you know, the customer standpoint of, you know, it's, it's great that we have the dogs we have and, you know, they're very impressive and they do great things. Right. But at the same time, um, you know, they're hard decisions that have to be made and it's not always a fun thing to to have to make it. Yeah. And when we import dogs, um, from the UK, rather than importing them and instantly bringing them into our breeding program, because we know the standards they have over there. We know what we're getting in, but Josh and I also want to see firsthand what they're like in a living situation in their home with us, with our kids. What are they like at the lake house? What? Do, how do they go through their training with Josh? And then how do they implement that into the field? Because, you know, then we can start to really get to the nitty gritty of what they have and what we're looking for. And like Josh said, you know, we've imported a lot of dogs that we hoped and prayed we're going to work out and check all the boxes and even if there's just one box that we can't check you know then we don't bring them into our breeding program but they still live a very very good life with the client that we rehomed them with gotcha well that's cool it sounds like you guys kind of take a lot of the guesswork out for your clients like i mentioned you know how do you mm-hmm. what traits do you look for in a puppy well it sounds like you guys got that already all figured out <laughs> Yeah, we do. And what's really cool is the way that Josh and I work together is, um, you know, I, you know, I really look at the home side of things. I like that off switch because the dogs are inside the home with me and our kids when Josh is traveling. And from him, his standpoint, he wants a dog with a lot of go when it comes to the field. So Josh and I even each other out really well when we sit down and we would look at these breeding pairs because if it was up to Josh, we would be breeding very hot dogs to each other and you know everyone needs uh, every wife and husband they all want that off switch and a great family member and then we even go to our um our reservation list and say okay these are how many people want to hunt test their dogs so what dogs can we breed together to fulfill those clients needs and these people want a therapy dog so what dogs do we need to breed together to fulfill those people's needs and then everyone in between so it is like putting together a thousand piece puzzle every single year to make sure that we're fulfilling all of our clients' needs and breeding the temperaments that we want. Yeah, and and, and I'll echo that. But Whitney does a fantastic job, you know, even me out because my competitive nature wants to, to be producing like fire breathers, right? Because that's what I love. Uh, but Whitney has a good job being like Josh. Not everybody needs that. Actually, very few people need that, right? Like let's let's produce you know, these these great dogs, great drives. But they don't have to be fire breeders, right? And that's where you know, it's amazing watching what these dogs do. And this is where you really have to kind of step outside of, of like your little tunnel vision and go, you know, what what does your clientele need, right? More than just just what you specifically want, because sure. we've had dogs that go be cadaver dogs mm-hmm. and bomb dogs and canines, you know, you know uh, drug dogs, and like all this stuff. It's so incredible. Therapy dogs. Yeah. It's just so incredible what they're all able to go do that. You know, not all of them need to go around an 800 yard blind retreat. You know, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, it, it's really a fun process, man. It's a, it's something that um, oftentimes with our profession, if if you get if you talk with someone that they don't know you, they don't know the industry, and you start saying, "Oh, yeah, I, I train dogs, or I breed dogs," like people will literally laugh and be like, "So, you, like, you can actually make enough to like have somewhat of a living doing that?" You know, and it's like, "Well, yes, you know, you know, we." <laughs> We uh, we do you know we we try to make this a real business you know and uh, but it, it's just funny you know people people that get it and they see it you know they understand how much goes into this that this isn't you know unfortunately we're not sitting here playing with puppies all day that there's a lot more that goes into making this business what it is yep so you you kind of alluded to this a little my next question can you train for a versatile hunting dog or should you train for like a spe- a, a, spe- a special like duck dog or should you train for just a special upland dog um i you know whitney you were talking a little bit about bracken and how he's maybe uh you know more of a duck dog but then you took him out pheasant hunting with you too so talk a little bit about that 
Well, you know, for me, the big thing comes down to expectations, right? The reason I say that is because if you take a young dog and, you know, one hunt, they're sitting in the duck blind, you want them to be quiet and calm and patient and, you know, wait. And then the literal next hunt, it's, okay, now go, 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 and go hunt the pheasant. And you flip-flop back and forth. For a young dog in particular, it's very difficult for that dog to understand what they're doing and why, right? So then you're going to take them then from, you know, you might have seen an issue when you went from the duck blind to the pheasant field and they didn't want to leave your side. Well, then you finally got them leaving the, you know, your side hunting, and now you take them back to the duck blind, and they're like, all right, let's go, let's go, we're hunting. And you're like, no, you sit here, and you be calm. And they're like, well, wait a second, right? <laughs> and so, so this is where sometimes we as people do a really poor job putting ourselves in the dog's shoes or in the dog's mind going, how can we best help you? Like one of the things that I always highly encourage people to do um, is if you're going to do both, focus on the waterfall side of things first. Because you think about the waterfall side of things, there's so much control that goes into it. They're sitting, being still for sometimes four, five, six hours. And if you have a slow day, your expectation is they sit there calm and quiet the whole time, right? They have to be steady, not breaking, which, you know, I, I'm pretty blunt about this. I don't think there's a reason that anyone could ever tell me of why they would allow a dog to break. It puts a dog in a dangerous situation being out in front of those gun barrels. And a lot of times if you're in a blind or a pit, you're at the dog's level. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to put the dog in that, in that danger. Plus, when the dog's steady, the dog can mark multiple birds go down. So it's, from an efficiency side, they're more efficient as well. So they have to be they have to be steady. They have to be under control on those retrieves, right? There's so much where when you're upland hunting, I, and this is where my hardcore upland guys, I wouldn't include, like there's control in upland too. And I, I'm not saying there's not, but it's a different kind of control. They're, they're out there actively go, go, going. And so if you take that dog that is go, 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 and then you start to say, well, now you can't move. Sometimes it's more difficult for the dog to harness that and rein that back, where if you have the consistency of sitting being still, loosening up the reins later on is always easier to me uh, than going back and forth. Um, another thing, now this is a me thing. This, this is something that yeah, I get um, a lot of questions about and a lot of, oh, I, don't, I don't think I could do that. I totally get it. But for me, I never hunt my dogs in their first year. I just think there's too many issues that go on. Your training is not fully done yet. You are going to create bad habits with that training not being fully done. And you're just going to put yourself in a situation that you're going to have to overcome some hurdles that would be unnecessary hurdles if you just finished the training and got them you know, into, uh, into that second season fully trained with enough repetition down. But that doesn't mean I completely lose that first season. So what I'll do is I'll bring my young dogs out. Again, I'm a big waterfowler. So I'll bring them out and they sit in the blind with me and just watch. And the reason I have them do that is because if you think about a hunt, there's so much that you can, there's so much that goes on that you cannot train for. You cannot train for mallards wanting to sit down in the decoys. You can't train for those big groups of Canada's that are trying to sit on you. You can't train for, you know, that, you know, that wad of, you know, 60 pintails that just spin and spin and spin and spin and spin. They won't do it, right? It's like, you can't train for that. And so to bring a dog into a situation that they can just sit and soak it all in is important. And then when you take the retrieve aspect out of it, you start to take some of the temptations off the table. So for a young dog in that first hunt, you know, they see all this stuff, their mind gets blown, shots go off, birds fall, and they're like, oh, my gosh. And then you send them on a retrieve. Well, then, of course, the next time they're like, well, last time when this happened, I got to go retrieve. And so you build that anxiousness, right? And then all of a sudden – the dog wants to break where he's never broken training, right? So, but there's so much more to this. Giving that first year of just easing into it, letting them understand what's going on, letting them you know, get their mind blown, but stay chill. Um, it's been incredibly beneficial. Now, it's, it's extremely tempting. Like, there are a lot of times that, you know, there's a big splash in the decoys and, like, that bird is 10 yards right in front of this dog. You know, this would be a successful retreat. It is very hard not to send that dog in that retreat. <laughs> But I'm telling you, when you come into that second year and you have a dog that is quiet, that is calm, that is under control, and that has been here before, and now you can apply your fully finished dog and apply everything that you've trained into that situation, you will have, I think the, the biggest reason people say that dogs peak at ages, yeah, you know, everyone says something different, four, five, six, whatever it is, 
and simply because that's how long it takes them to give them the repetition that they need for the dog to fully understand what's going on, right? When you eliminate a year of hurdles that you have to overcome, you'll see that maturation process of what's perceived as maturity anyway, you'll see that come through that much faster. And then you get so many more quality years with your dog. And uh, we have a lot of clients that have done this. And I cannot tell you how fantastic the feedback has been come year two. Everybody hates year one, right? Because yeah. everybody wants to hunt their, hunt their dogs and want to get their retreat. But come year two, I honestly can't say there's ever been a single client that doesn't come back with something short of, I 100% get it now. Like, I see it. I totally understand why, why we did that. I'm so grateful and thankful that we did it. Definitely sounds like that it might be worth it just to, to let, them, let them sit on the bench and watch. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I, I, I will say, go ahead. Me having eight dogs versus <laughs> just one. Like if you have one, it's way harder yeah. to sit out that one. If I have my other dogs, I can hunt. But it it is worth it if you can do it. Definitely. So I kind of wanted to get into a little bit, of, a few listener questions. Um, some of the mm-hmm. people that I've had on, you know, I, I was talking to Whitney. Uh, one of the, uh, the gals I had on here earlier, her dog's getting a little bit older. Um, kind of gonna hang hang the gloves up I guess and maybe retire from you know he's getting old and kind of hard to get around so they'll be looking for a for a new pup here coming up uh but one of her questions and a few I guess a few of her questions were what are what's one of the training tips or techniques that you think is is most underrated oh gosh underrated yeah, what uh, what do you think? Yeah, un- what's an underrated training tip? Uh, I, I can tell you what mine is. Mine is, without a doubt, obedience. I, I think obedience is so underrated. Oh, yeah. I, I think obedience is that thing that people look at of like, I have to do this, I don't want to do it, and I want to get through it and done with it as soon as possible. But if you look at across the board what obedience is, obedience is everything. You cannot do, so like Brock's longest retrieve, Brock's one of my dogs, his longest retrieve that he had this year was 876 yards or something like that. A blind retrieve. Like, he's literally a pin drop. Yeah, a half mile away. Literally a pin drop. Wow. And, uh, you know, and so like that, that, in that right there, people are like, oh my gosh, how do you do that? Well, you have to have the right dog for one. But two, it's obedience. Mm -hmm. If he's not control at my, he's not, if he's not at complete control at my side, He's never going to be when you start pushing further and further away. And so this is something that we get so many messages, specifically on social media of, hey, you know, my, my dog is struggling with casting. You know, any tips on how to fix it? Yes, obedience. And people are like, no, you know, he's done obedience. Like, I understand, but he's not doing it well enough then. And, and sometimes I know, especially if people don't know me, that it probably comes across as rude or punk, they don't mean it to, but it's the truth. Nobody wants to go revisit obedience because it's boring. Right. I mean, it's, it's boring for me. I do it literally every single day. It is boring as heck. But it's, necess- it's a necessity for everything else. Every goal that you have with your dog, I promise you, the foundation of it is obedience. Yeah. I would agree. And even coming from a puppy standpoint, not so much as even an adult standpoint, but a puppy needs to know where they fall on the totem pole. And you need to be the dominant person to tell them that. And as soon as they become a good citizen, that's when they can start going to breweries with you. They can start going to, you know, go on family vacations, going to the lake, and they're a happier puppy because of it, and you are an overall happier family because of it. 100%. Definitely. Yeah, and they're getting along with kids, and it's not a not as much yep. of a chore for somebody to watch your dog when you want to go on vacation. And Yeah. Yeah. Another one of her questions um, what about gun shy dogs? What can you do? I know a lot of it starts when they're a puppy and, you know, mm-hmm. getting older, but talk to me about what you guys do uh, from such an early age in that pup and how it kind of helps mm-hmm. them in the long run. Yeah. I, for gun shy, yeah. you can say that. Um, I mean, I, as a breeder, I'll tell you kind of what I start to do to acclimate our puppies to sounds is that in our puppy nursery, I have a vacuum cleaner. I do dishes in there. I make mush in a blender. Um, they're hearing doors opening and shutting. They're getting acclimated to just these everyday sounds. And by doing that, you know, just like I said, they're getting acclimated. So when they go home, the family's vacuuming, kids are running around, you know, they're already used to these sounds where if you put them in these 
quiet situations, you know, kind of like a baby, you know, if, if your baby's sleeping and you are quiet all the time, that kid is going to have a really hard time growing up. And when they're starting to be um, different things going around when they're sleeping, well, same thing with the puppies that you want to start acclimating them to sound, but in the right way, you know, Josh will say, you know, you're obviously you're not going to take your puppy. I'm going to shoot around them. There is a rhyme and a reason to how to do that. But as a puppy, you do want to kind of start to acclimate them to the vacuum cleaner and to a blender and to doing dishes, stuff like that. That's how I look at it as a breeder. Josh will tell you his pers- his diet as a trainer. Well, and, and from the, the puppy aspect, from a breeder standpoint, that should not be overlooked. And I remember the, the first time that we had heard that, um, it was actually a really good friend of ours by the name of Rick Grant, or uh, Rick Smith, I'm sorry. And Rick, um, you know, very well dog family i mean his, his dad delmer smith he's like the godfather of dog training he's, he's just an incredible person rick's an incredible person yeah but i remember him talking about how you know so many of these puppy nurseries if he goes to these breeders now it's like in this very quiet room with like soft classical music playing and and he's like it's one of the dumbest things that i've ever seen and i was like whoa like what you know because like in my head i'm like that's puppy feely right like i want it to be like nice and well and sweet and he's like think about it josh if, if those puppies, their entire life, everything's so quiet and soft and everything, and then in, you know, four months, we're trying to shoot over them, like, that's a pretty drastic change. And I'm like, okay, Absolutely. well, that makes great sense. So, like, with Whitney, Whitney vacuums, and then the puppies get to come out. So, from, mm-hmm. from a very early age, noises mean something good is going to happen. The blender goes. They get fed. Mm-hmm. Noise means something good is going to happen, right? So, you just start to develop that, and you don't, you don't coddle them. You, know, you protect them, you keep them happy, you keep them healthy, you keep all that stuff is, of course, a necessity. But you start the process early on. And then, you know, for me, from a training standpoint, um, there's never been a dog born gun shy. All right? There just, there just hasn't been. It is a management issue. And we see, from a training standpoint, we see more dogs come in for us to attempt to break gun shyness and the reason they're gun shy, and this is going to sound funny, but I promise you this is the actual answer that people get. The reason the dog is gun shy is because the owner shot over them to see if they're gun shy. I, I, I mean, it's, it's like to us, it's like, oh, my gosh. You know, because you, know, you, take, you take a kid, right? You take a kid, a uh, 10-year-old kid, has no idea what's going on, you light a 12-gauge off right behind them. Well, of course they're going to jump, right? They're going to yep. jump. They're going to be nervous. Like, what the heck is going on? But some, for some reason, we think differently with dogs. You know, it's like um, we, we just had someone call um, about a week ago, and he talked to me, and he was like, man, he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how I should go through my water work this year because he just hated the water last year. And, of course, being in Minnesota, he was from Minnesota. He's like, yeah, everything's ice, of course. So I have to wait until ice come off. And uh, he's like, you know, it's just so frustrating because he's a lab. He should like swimming. I'm like, okay, well, how did you introduce it last year? He's like, well, he wouldn't go in. And to be honest with you, he just got frustrated. So I took him to the end of the dock and I threw him in thinking Uh-oh. that if he would just figure it okay, that he would get over it. <laughs> you know, it's the same thing from a kid, right? You push a kid that has never swam, you know, swam before, throw him in the lake and say, look, man, figure it out. It's not that bad. Like, you're going to develop a fear. And, uh, and so you're really building that confidence and, and introducing things in the right way. It's so important. Um, you know, we always recommend everybody, like, if you're going to do one thing with your dog as it, as it pertains to training, like, get them into a burning gun introduction program because that is going to just make sure that you have that foundation set. So the dog is going to love birds. The dog is going to be great with guns. From that point forward, you can take your time to do any training that you want to going forward. But if one of those two things are not done or not done properly, you you can have the most talented dog in the world, but if he's gun shy, he's not going to be a hunting dog. Makes sense. Another question that I got from a, one of my hunting buddies, he's got a uh, a young dog now working on training and getting the fundamentals down, but one of his questions is, uh, how do you get a dog to prioritize a, the farthest bird? So say, you know, you got a group of honkers that come in, you shoot three out of the flock, and one of them kind of sails off a bit. Obviously, they're going to want to cherry pick and go grab that one that's in the decoys, but that one that sails, it's kind of still half alive. How do you go, how do you, I guess, train that dog to see that farther bird and get that one first and go, well, you know, 
through the decoys, past the dead bird to get that sailed bird? How do you do that? Yeah, so so there's there's a lot that goes into this. I'll, I'll kind of give the abbreviated version so we don't talk about you know, this one thing for the next four hours. Sure. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but yeah, the abbreviated version is that the reason that most dogs do it is naturally when they go when they you know when a, a groups get you know rains out and they go and retrieve, they are going to pick up more than likely the first bird that they see, right? And so naturally, they come to retrieve. They know their job is to pick that up and they pick it up. Um, most of the time why dogs struggle with this is that you don't work on it, right? I mean, you don't work on, um, I'm pulling them off of, of birds. Now, what I will tell you is that if your dog has to run over a retrieve or a short bird to go get a long bird, most dogs, you're going to really have to fight to pull them off. And this is where your obedience and your handling, it has to be excellent. Otherwise, you're never going to pull them off. Of that. I mean, those feathers are going to take priority in that dog's mind over most things. But what we end up doing is we start, we'll, uh, we'll know bird, you know, so we'll, we'll throw a bird, mark it, boom, dog, you know, settled in on it, no, heal them over, and then run them past that bird on a blind. Now, we start this on a very wide angle, right? And so, like, you might, if we're looking at a face of a clock, if we're in the middle of it, you know, we might, you know, shoot that, that bird we're going to know off of at 10 and then pull them off and run a blind at 2. Right, and just have them understand you know that we're pulling you off this bird to run this blind retrieve, right? Gotcha. And even though that that sailed, you know, would you could consider that bird a mark, right? Because the dog probably saw it go down. If the dog's forefront of his mind is I want that short bird, and he's looking at it. You're going to have to run that that long bird the blind, right? So just know him off it, pull him. And then run that that long bird as a blind, and they, and they may recall it, right? So they may be halfway into their their task and going, oh my gosh, I remember that bird's there. Kick up another gear, go. Well, great, let them go, right? Yeah. But you got to pull them off of that that you know what we call the the go bird or the first bird that they want to go to. Pull them off of that and let them understand that hey, you're still going to get this bird, but we got to go pick this one up first. Um, most dogs that you don't train on a regular basis. They're, they're going to really fight you on this. Yeah, just yep. because naturally, right? I mean, those feathers, are really, they want to pick it up. Yeah, I can't imagine how tough it would be to run past something that smells so, you know, to a dog, they, they got that crazy nose that, yeah, running past that smelly bird would be tough. But, yeah, that's a good good rundown. <laughs> Thanks for sharing then, that. Yeah, well, I meant like, one more little evolution. If you couldn't tell, I'm kind of a nerd. I forgot about some of this stuff. Um, but like an evolution of that is you as a handler have to be ready. So if you're going to run past that bird you know it off of, you need to be ready, whistle in mouth, ready to the first second. that If you see your dog's head turn of like, I, I smell or I see that other bird, I want to go at it. It's tweet. Don't even let him start going to it. Tweet. Stop. Back cast them back to the bird you want them to go to, right? Like handling has to be on point. Yep. It has to be sharp, you know. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's a tough thing. It takes a lot of work. Yeah, definitely. It all it all kind of makes sense. You know, it's going back to what you were talking about earlier. The fundamentals, you know, basic obedience and starting there. And it uh, if you if you build the right foundation, it should should you know be a lot easier and you know for yourself in the long run. So cool. Um, yeah. one other question from a guy I work with, have you ever had a, a dog or have you ever trained a dog that just couldn't do it or just couldn't handle? And what do you do with that dog? Well, you know, from a training standpoint, you know, I, I wouldn't say that we've ever had a dog that we just couldn't train. Now there's certainly dogs we've had that aren't capable of the goals that, that the owners have. Okay. I mean, that's a real thing. That's where genetics come in, right? Like, We've had, you know, we don't see it as much anymore, um, I think, because our clientele now is just so educated with, all, you know, we, we try to put out a lot of free information to people, whether it's through social media, whether it's through the podcast, whether, it's, you know, there's a lot out there that we're trying to to help educate people. Seminars are another big one that we try to help educate. One thing, um, also us knowing what our clients are looking for and placing them with the correct puppy. Right, for our clients. For so, our but clients, but right. from a if you don't have a puppy from us, what we used to see is we used to see people coming to us being like, well, you know, I, I thought I would save money on the dog and put it in a train. Yeah. And, and that's where we would see dogs fall short because it's like, well, you know, if you know, put it in the, the sports terms, like, you know, you could bring me, I could be the best coach in the world. 
and you could bring me the water boy of the team and say, hey, he's got to play Michael Jordan in six months, and he has to beat him, right? So, like, do what you got to do. Like, if that if, if the the guy is, you know, five foot two and, you know, doesn't have any kind of athleticism, like, you're, you're never going to do it, right? Like, you have to have the right heart. You have to have the right drive, the right intelligence level, the right motor, the right – you have to have everything that I can't teach you. Now, if you have that, I can do amazing things with you. A lot of great trainers and great handlers and great owners do amazing things. But if you don't have the right student to begin with, you're never going to achieve that. And so that's where getting with the right genetics is so important. I think that's one of the reasons we're so passionate about the puppies that we're producing is because we feel like we're doing that. Um, and again, you know, the proof's in the pudding of what these, these puppies are, are able to do and what they're capable of. And so um, that's, that's a bigger thing. It's not, not necessarily, I mean, we've literally had dogs that, I mean, some pretty crazy, crazy stories as far as like, uh, you know, getting like nightmare situations with different trainers, um, you know, nightmare situations of like, you know, getting attacked and then being defensive and like all this stuff has been really, really interesting. So I've, but I've never had a dog that just like, this dog is, a complete lost cause, not going to do anything. We may tweak what the goals are, mm-hmm. but yeah. I wouldn't say that there's ever a complete lost cause. Gotcha. Well, cool. You also, uh, you're a fellow podcaster. Uh, you got a podcast on online, Duck Dogs Podcast. You started that what, uh, about a year ago or so? Yeah, yeah, about a year ago. Right at the, well, maybe more than that now, it was right at the start of uh, COVID. And the reason I did that is that I really, really enjoy uh, speaking. I love giving seminars. And what I love about it is uh, when I can look in an audience when I'm talking about something and I can see your faces light up or smiles and nods and I know that I feel like I'm making an impact on somebody, um, it's extremely rewarding for me. And when COVID came, I lost that. Right? I, I couldn't go give seminars because all these shows you know, shut down. And it was a way that I was like, hey, I can still help people. I can still give information. I can still, you know, try to make an impact on people's lives. And that's what that really came from. Um, and it's, it's fun. Like, like, you know, you know, um, it, it, it's time consuming, you know, it's, yeah. it's not a full time job, but it is time consuming. Um, it does. Uh, sometimes I have to be very disciplined and I need to do this this week and I need to carve out time and get it done. Um, but I do really enjoy it. I think we have a lot of people that really like following along with the different stories and the different, you know, tips and, and tricks like that. Um, but it's, it's really good stuff. And I think it's stuff that, um, that hopefully is being impactful for people. Absolutely. So where can, where can our listeners find Riverstone Kennels or where, if, you know, say we're interested in having our dog trained or if we're interested in getting a new pup, where can we get a hold of you guys? Yeah, absolutely. So one, you can definitely go to our website, riverstonekennels.com. Um, otherwise, we are on Facebook and Instagram, and we like to do um, a lot of stories, especially when we have puppies on the ground, just keep everyone up to date on our litters, you know, give some information on what we're doing with our puppies and why we do it. And then um, Josh does a lot of his hunts on there so people can actually see our dogs in action, which is really cool to see. So I would say our our website and then definitely social media. Yeah, I would encourage anyone listening to go check out your Instagram page. You guys put some awesome pictures up of your dogs, that's for sure. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, we, we can't take credit for that. <laughs> we have some pretty amazing friends that are very talented with the camera. Um, you know, it's, it's ama- we actually do very little with that. Mm-hmm. We have very good-looking dogs and we have very talented <laughs> friends. We just, we just get the benefit of it. Yeah. Well, that's good. It's not about what you know but who you know sometimes. So that's good to have that's good to have guys with good cameras. Right. So one other question I'd like to hear, uh, you know, uh, an answer from both of you, if you don't mind. Um, I ask all my, my guests on the here, can you tell me about a time when you were outdoors when time was standing still? Yeah. So um, although I love Upton, this is going to be a waterfall story. And so I was down in Arkansas with Josh hunting, obviously, and uh, we were in the blind and I remember a big group came in and I was just in awe watching, you know, Josh was going on the call. He was working the ducks in and, um, and I remember just literally standing there watching these ducks, you know, go around and they're dancing in the sky and, and they came down and everybody else shot and I didn't. And Josh was like, he looked at me, he's like, what the heck with? Like, why wouldn't you shoot? And I'm like, it never even crossed my mind to pick <laughs> up my gun. I was like, just amazed watching these birds 
you know, all these movements that they have and just watching them work with Josh on the calling, it was so cool that I literally did not even think to pick up my gun and shoot at him. <laughs> That's awesome. But definitely, yeah, definitely what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of, you know, when you, when you first ask that question, you know, a lot of things kind of pop into my mind, you know, that we've had so many amazing, um, you know, moments in the outdoors, you know, with Whitney and I, I mean, it's really has been a big part of our life. And I could, I could talk about, um, you know, even something as recent as, you know, we had an amazing day, uh, fly fishing in the flats, um, down in, in the keys, you know, the, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, which was incredible. Um, one of those moments of, yeah, you know, I mean, we had, you know, permit and res and everything like literally swimming between our legs. It was incredible. Just one of those, those, you know, those times, um, Whitney shooting her first big mature deer. Like that was one for me. You know, I, uh, you know, when I, you know, shot my 190 and that was a, a moment for me, but like, and I really look at all those, those things, you know, the, the big common, you know, the, the big common, um, denominator was the meaning behind it. Like, you know, when Whitney killed her big deer, it wasn't about killing that deer. It was about how many hours Whitney took, you know, sat in and she wouldn't lower her standards of killing a deer that wasn't mature. Like, because it wasn't about killing a deer. It was about the process that went into it. Um, you know, I, you know, the fishing, it was, you know, it was both the journey of being there together, just the two of us, because we don't get to you know, spend that time. But the one that really sticks out to me that I could, for me, I mean, it literally stood still was, um, so I, I mentioned earlier in, in this, uh, this podcast, uh, Easton. So Easton was my first, uh, my first, dog as far as um he's my first gun dog he was extremely successful but i've always told everybody that that i had easton in the absolute right time of my life but easton had me in the absolute wrong time of my life and the reason i say that is because i mean shoot man like i i hardly had you know enough money to to get you know put gas in my truck let alone you know go on hunting trips and go experience the things that quite frankly easton deserved that like he he deserved to go experience these special places and months and so as he got older uh, I kind of put a bucket list together of what I wanted to do with East and I tried to make all that happen the one thing that I did not get to accomplish with Easton is I did not get a big bull tail in his mouth and I don't know why but that was just you know we don't get pintails in Wisconsin I just thought that was something I really wanted to do and I tried and I tried and I tried and um, it just never happened and um, it was always something that weighed on me you know I don't know I don't know if I, I felt like I failed him in that way or whatever, but it was something that really did bother me. And then um, I've been blessed with a lot of good dogs, um, a lot of great dogs, actually. Um, but Brock is a very special dog to me in a lot of ways, too. He's a, he's, he's a standout. I mean, no matter where we go, any competition, any hunt, any anything, he's the one that stands out. And uh, so he's, he's kind of like my Easton, you know, now. Mm-hmm. And uh, his first real hunting season, um, we were down in Arkansas. And um, we were in a blind. It was kind of a slow day. And, you know, everybody just kind of was, like, in the back of the blind, like, screwing around, like, you know, watching a video. And, like, literally no one was actually hunting. And I was, like, looking back, like, laughing at, you know, where everyone was joking around and telling jokes and everything. And I look out, and this group of pintails are, like, literally, like, elevatoring down right, like, right over the decoy. And so I'm the only one by a gun. They start flaring. I pop up and I just, I pick up the biggest bull and I, I shoot one, hold that bird, drops. I didn't even shoot again. I absolutely could have probably killed three birds there, but I, like, it was like, I think it was very impactful that I knew what was happening. And, uh, so that bird, I actually get goosebumps talking about this, but, um, that bird fell and I looked down and you know, Easton, or not Easton, oh my gosh, uh, Brock is, uh, is dialed in and, uh, I send Brock and he goes and picks that bird up and it was like, I mean, it was absolute slow motion. I mean, it was like, I don't know what anyone was saying. I don't know what anyone was talking about. I was in my own little world. And I just remember when, when he handed me that bird, I just, I felt the tears coming down my face because I, you know, it was like that moment, right? It was like, I finally felt like I had the closure of like, Hey, like I didn't do this for, I didn't get it done for Easton, but like, it felt like it was, that was like, that was my closure of like, okay, like now I can, I can kind of have that, that move on. So, um, yeah, so that, that was probably my biggest, my biggest moment as far as like when it just absolutely stood so for me. That's cool. 
Um, yeah, it's neat to be able to share that with your best bud. <laughs> Definitely. For sure. Cool. Well, thanks so much for being on here, guys. One more thing, I, and I didn't tell you about this last segment. Uh, I call it my this or that segment. It's my surprise segment. It's a, it's a list of 10 questions. I'll just rattle off. Uh, it's a two, two answers. Um, so whatever one you think sounds cooler. Uh, we'll go ladies first, mm-hmm. I guess. And then, Josh, you can, you can follow up, all right? <laughs> all right. All right. So, Whitney, roosters or greenheads? Oh, roosters. Greenheads. <laughs> <laughs> Next one, training dogs or training the owners? Which is the question, which is more fun or which is more important? Uh, good question. Back at me. Um, let's go with which one is more important. Owners. Owner. Okay. How about a road trip or a local hunt? Road trip. Agreed. All right. Black or yellow? Oh, my gosh. So hard. Whichever one's sitting by my side. (laughs) (laughs) I love little yellow puppies, but I also love black adult dogs for whatever reason. All right. That's been a a tough one. It's a reoccurring theme question that that I ask. I know, you know my buddies that duck hunt and some guests that I've had on here. It's a tough one to answer. Both of them, you know, both of the guys I asked this to earlier have both have, both have had both. So it's a, it's definitely yeah. a tough one to answer. What about yeah. a water hunt or a field hunt? I mean, I would say field just because of upland hunting, but I also, I will, if you're in a, in a waterfall situation, then I'm going to pick water. All right, Josh. Yeah, it, it, it's hard to go away from water hunts just because yeah. I think there's so much with waterfall, obviously, revolving around water. But from a dog standpoint, I love field hunts because mm-hmm. oftentimes you can really stretch those dogs out. I mean, that's where you oftentimes get those big, long sailing retrieves that you can really you know, challenge your dog. So I'm going to go field. Mm-hmm. All right. What about a single read or a double read? I have no idea. I don't call. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm a single read guy. I do have uh, I do have a double read on my lander right now though, which is kind of abnormal for me. I I'm normally a single <laughs> read guy. All right. What about breakfast in the blind or a post hunt greasy spoon diner? Oh, breakfast in the blind. I love that. Yeah, I, I'm post hunt because even when we have <laughs> breakfast in the blind, I'm often not eating because I blow food into my mouth. So. <laughs> <laughs> what about early season honkers or iced up mallards? Ice up Mallard. Agreed. All right. I know you guys like sports. What about the World Series or the Super Bowl? Super Bowl. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I, I go World Series. Right. I just think there's. I, I love the the strategy around you know the multi games and how you're going to use players, and I yep. just think there's more strategy around the World Series. What about corn or rice? Depends. Are we in Arkansas or are we in North Dakota? <laughs> uh, I was like, are we eating? Uh, what would we prefer? Corn. <laughs> corn. corn. All right, corn. All right. Well, thanks so much, guys. It's been fun chatting with you. Um, I've learned qu- uh, quite a bit about diff- different training techniques and dogs and puppies and uh, pretty much everything. So I think our listeners have, too. I really appreciate you guys. Yeah, thank you so much for having us on. We've had a blast. All right. Take it easy. Good luck. Good luck.